Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Sometimes in football, you have to hold your hand up and say, yeah, they're better than us. Those are the old words of Sir Alex Ferguson. But this is also a man who openly admitted time after time, I don't like losing and said, I tell the players that the bus is moving. This club has to progress and the bus wouldn't wait for them. I tell them to get on board. The greatest football manager of his era, Fergie, is remembered for the victories, an insatiable desire to win, a commitment to glory so thorough and disciplined that he saw off rivals in all shapes, sizes and forms over more than two decades. But what about the defeats? Because there were many of them, 271 to be precise. Well, Ferguson himself has said the following, losing is a powerful management tool so long as it does not become a habit and you learn more from defeats than you do from victories. Um, In a new book titled Even the Defeats, journalist John Silk tells the story of how the painful moments of Sir Alex Ferguson's reign at Manchester United inspired him to lead the club to its greatest successes. Beginning with a 5-1 loss at Manchester City and ending with the final Premier League title, the book looks at what was perhaps Ferguson's greatest strength, dealing and overcoming adversity. With views from players, coaches and other members of staff, even the defeats is out already and I'm pleased to be joined by the author John Silk to talk about Ferguson, those defeats and the book in general. John is a journalist working for Deutsche Welle. He's covered sports and international affairs for more than a decade and has followed United for 40 years. Um, John, thank you for coming on the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. Um, it's an exciting new topic for a book. Yeah, um, it, it is. Um, uh, it's one I've been considering and it's been there at the back of my mind for a long time. Uh, it kind of came to the forefront of my mind probably in the last couple of years when I started really seriously considering the book. And the more I thought about it, the more I could see uh, a relationship between, you know, some of the best moments uh, in, in you know, as being a United fan during the Ferguson era. Every time I, I found the top moment, whether it be 99, whether it be 2008, whether it be some of the great Premier League titles and, and possibly none more so than his last one in 2013, mm. every time I looked at it and analysed it, I could see a relationship and, and, and a serious lineage, a serious line between, you know, a bad moment, if you like, a setback, adversity. And, and you mentioned that in your intro that 
Ferguson was never better than in adversity, and he pretty much says so himself on on many occasions. Yeah, and I thought I'd I'd dive straight in there to begin with, and ask you what you think the the greatest of all the setbacks was. And I think I think as fans we can kind of uh, remember maybe the the biggest score lines of defeat. Uh, and the sixth one was the, the last massive one of those against City. But I think sometimes the setbacks are, in, are kind of, in fact, the the periods rather than one certain match. In fact, the the periods of struggle um, that maybe fans remember less conveniently and less immediately. But w- writing the book, what did you come away with thinking this was the moment where Ferguson was at his best, where he he came from the lowest ebb and to the highest peak? I think um, probably when you when you frame frame the question like that, I think probably would be the sort of oh four oh five period oh six um, the the years when we were we you know there were other years when we just missed out on the title ninety five obviously it's obvious ninety two to some extent ninety eight mm. you know but they were probably very explicable and you could cite particular reasons I think for both fans to some extent and maybe even Ferguson himself. Or certainly, certainly the way he recovered, because it was such a stretch. It was such a period, and 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 losing at Benfica in '05, I think it was December, where I think there were many fans, and certainly pundits, who thought, you know, that was the end, and it was going to be a sad end in a way, and it was going to be an end, possibly like Wenger kind of experienced yeah. a decade later. And I think we all feared that. We'd still remember him as being one of the best, if not the best managers in United's history, even if he'd gone out on a slightly lower ebb in sort of 06, 07, if he hadn't quite managed to drag the club from that period. But I think the reason why for Ferguson it's also particularly impressive is just because, you know, I think he was looking at the longer game. There were other things going off on off the pitch, but let's talk about on the pitch. You know, his investment in players like Rooney and Ronaldo uh, and the way he did learn from Wenger, from Mourinho, I think it's a really underrated strength that that Ferguson would would not be too proud all the time to not learn from others. And I think that would be the period and that would be the setback, I, I would say, used because it's over a period of time other than just one individual defeat that probably gives him and, and even fans a, a lot of pride and joy. If there's one setback, though, that probably hurts him, or hurt him the most, I'm going to have to say two. I think the time losing the league and the manner in which they did in 2012, losing that, you know, devastated him and, you know, knocked the wind out of him to some extent and even his family. I mean, he talks about his wife not wanting to, or, you know, his wife says he didn't, she didn't even want to go out because she was too afraid of meeting City fans. And I spoke to Paul Haywood at length about this and, and how devastated Ferguson was about it. Um, however, he recovered from it and he responded a year later and he, and, and, and Paul Hayward also spoke about how, you know, his response to that was, was magnificent. And Ferguson told Paul Hayward about the level of hurt that that gave him also strengthened his resolve, the amount of time he'd spend analyzing opponents, the amount of time he'd spend in the, in the video analysis room was driven and partly down to the manner of the defeat from the year before. But there's probably a defeat or two possibly you could say that he didn't recover from and therefore I think retrospectively in the six years or seven years since he retired that I think 2009 the Champions League final and that's obviously something I talk about as a fan in the book just because he never quite got the legacy in Europe 
the the, the united yeah. era that he so yearned for i think i think for uh, certainly for me i think that's the the single most painful game i can remember um it, it was because and I, and you mentioned this in the book because there was so much confidence going into that game European champions, 2007, we'd been close to a treble. 2008, the double. 2009, there was still the the expectation that Manchester United were the, the world's best team. And it, it wasn't just the, the defeat and the result, but the, the manner in which Barcelona just dispatched of this incredible United side made the hurt so much more. And I yeah, I think that's one that, whereas the Aguero moment, I think was made up for with such a dominant 2013 title victory. I, I don't think 2009 was ever made up for. No, that's the, that's the one that there was, I mean, obviously 2013 was painful too. And, uh, but I do think there's a bit different with 2013 because although that hurt Ferguson immensely at the time, and that's talked about in the book and Rene Mullenstein gave me a lot of insight into that defeat and, and how Ferguson was afterwards. Um, I think with that defeat in 2013, there's not much really Ferguson could really have done differently. I mean, he set the team up amazingly home and away. We probably were the better team for 75, 80% of that. And of course, the the sending off of Nanny. And whereas 2009, there's a lot of regret, I think, with that. And going into the final as favourites. And you win that match and suddenly Ferguson can retire knowing that that we had what what he always wanted, which was a United era of if not dominance, you would certainly call it the yeah. United era, given, as you highlighted, 2007 being so close, winning it in 08, winning it in 09. You know, you've got a, a nice body of work there that, you know, for three, four years, you know, we got to the final again in 2011, but we were a long way off Barcelona by then. Um, yeah, that's 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 the one, really, and, and we could have and should have done better. I, I talk about it in the book, and I think um, Kiros's absence on the training pitch I speak about it a lot regarding the 2008, you know, Champions League victory. And uh, I think his absence meant that Ferguson felt in a way in 09 and then also in 2011, there was no other way that Ferguson felt comfortable setting up a team. So he wanted to be open. And I know we played three in midfield, but there's so many different ways you can play, you know, three in midfield that this, uh, we were still very aggressive, I think, in terms of the first 15 minutes. It was going behind that, that killed us that night. And Ferguson has a lot of regrets about that game. Yeah, you mentioned Kiros, and I think that for all of us, that uh, there's a for some people it's kind of a willing acceptance, and for others it's kind of a reluctant acceptance that he was so crucial to 2008. Um, and I'd be interested in more about uh, the the journey from the AC Milan semi final defeat in 2007 to Moscow in a second. But you've spoken to you mentioned Rene Mullenstein and many others, um, journalists, coaches, ex players. And it, it clearly changed over time and, and depended on the scenario. But can you attempt to summarise the, the default standard response of Sir Alex Ferguson to a setback to defeat? And I, I think from my perspective, having not studied it in the detail that you have, it, it, it seems kind of to be broken down into the convincing the fans to carry on trusting him whether that's through the media or a change in performances and then the internal uh, kind of diplomacy in the dressing room. Um, but I mean, you you go ahead with your knowledge. 
Sure. Uh, I mean, René Mullenstein uh, spoke about that and we'll talk about it in three phases. Um, there would be the sort of the first phase in terms of the dressing room, uh, how he reacted. And sometimes he'd be unpredictable in the dressing room and, and the players kind of, I mean, Ferdinand also spoke about that level of unpredictability on, on occasion. I think he liked that, that, that sometimes that they would expect to get a bollocking and they would get the arm around the shoulder or, but, but in general, Ferguson's reaction to defeat would just be, did they let the players, did they let themselves down? You know, I think in 2009, for example, he did think he let themselves, you know, they let themselves down. Michael Carrick's uh, spoken about that on more than one occasion. Um, but yes, yeah, so there'd be that reaction in the dressing room. Now, that may also be at half time, by the way. Uh, and Ferguson was a master at uh, getting his message across, being angry with players, for example, and yet still motivating them. We know that some people don't take well to criticism. Um, but, you know, Ferguson could also do it in a very clever way. He could say, you're better than that, you know which is an excellent phrase to use with a player who's being chastised and yet he's going, wow, you know, he thinks I'm a good player uh, and, he, and he's going to go out and, and perform better in the second half, for example, or, or the following week. Um, there's also that bit that you spoke about with the media. And I think when it came to the media, Paul Hayward speaks about it and how he would, you know, get himself ready for the media. And this could be on the Friday before the match. And this could also have followed a, a defeat a few days before. And Ferguson would go on the attack and he'd be ready for it. And, um, he, but he'd want to get a message across, you know, uh, Clive Tilsley told me that, that once that, uh, you know, he interviewed him after a Manchester Derby defeat in 2002 and Ferguson was raging about, about the players basically and how he wanted to let the fans in to let them know what it meant to lose a Derby. And Clive Tilsley joked that he could have asked him what the capital of Ecuador was that day. And, <laughs> and Ferguson still would have responded the same way. Um, so I think Ferguson knew what he was doing and, there was often a message in this time that he wanted to get the fans on board too. Uh, and it didn't matter how he would do that. Um, and, and, and we did, we were all singing from the same hymn sheet. And I think that's where Ferguson, the leader comes in and, and, and even the media and even opposition were, were singing from the same hymn sheet, if you like, that, that they would believe that we were better in second halves of seasons, even though if we really closely scrutinize some of the statistics, particularly in the 90s when this narrative emerged, actually a different pattern emerges. But it doesn't matter if people are on board. And this is kind of almost, a, you know, a politician, a leader getting everyone on board, whether that be, you know, fans, players, backroom staff or even opposition people, if you like. Um, so then there would be a third phase, which Rennie Mullenstein also speaks about as well, where and this this was a nice touch that, that Mullenstein would really appreciate where, you know, he'd go into the you know opposition dressing room, shake hands after losing against Porto. I think it was in 2004, sharing a bottle of wine with an opposing manager, with the exception, of course, of Wenger, as we all know. Um, and this would be the third phase that, that, that Rene speaks about at length in, in, in both the forward, but also in the book as a whole. And I found it fascinating. And, and I think we all did, didn't we? I mean, listen, when we lost 6-1 to, to Man City, I, I was devastated by the result, of course, in, in 2011. But I also wanted to know what Ferguson had to say. I was desperate. And, and I was desperate to know what to say after other defeats and other setbacks. And 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 I was desperate to know, but I was also on board. You know, he, I would be yeah. motivated as a fan. And that was the stranglehold he had over everyone, really, at the time. Yeah, it seems different to now when I think over the last few managers, after a defeat like that, you hear them, you're, you're looking for the mistake in what they say uh, to kind of justify your 
your frustration at the result. Whereas with Ferguson, I think you, you you look to what he said for 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 kind of guidance, for comfort to know what to think about the game. And I I don't know. I think that there's not many managers who who have replicated that control over a fan base. Yeah, right. I mean, um, I completely agree with Ferguson. Of course, for the last twenty years, pretty much, with the odd exception, he had success to to back him up. So I guess that helps. But but he he galvanised everyone and, and the fans as well. We just you know we loved it. We loved when he talked about noisy neighbours, or <laughs> we loved it, and we we were on board with that. Um, we loved it as well, even in defeat when we had a crushing defeat against, you know, or not being knocked out by Bayern in 2010. And he came on TV and he said, typical Germans, uh, even though like, you know, seven out of the eight players surrounding the referee were not German. We didn't scrutinize it. We just loved it. We, we, it was great that he felt like we did and, and he was as, as upset as we were. So, uh, I mean, when you talk about the modern day and the reaction to defeat, the, the, one of the ones that sticks out for me since 2013 and the reaction to it was Mourinho's reaction to the not when we knocked out by Seville in 2018, I think it was February, March time. That for me, I, I was, you know, I was still wanting to win titles, of course, and you always do. But but that reaction that Mourinho showed and he talked about heritage and what he meant by that was United's, you know, lack of success in Europe in, in recent years. Well, that was not what we wanted to hear. We wanted yeah. to hear that losing to Seville, because by the way, you know, that's fair enough to say that under Ferguson in, in 2013, we went out, you know, in the, in the knockout stage the year before as well in the group stage. But generally, if we went out under Ferguson in the latter years, with the exception of that group stage knockout, we went out in 2007, okay, to Milan. That's fine, semi-finals. We lost to Barcelona in 2009, 2011. You know, that's fine. You know, it's not great. We don't like it. And we, we, we're upset about it and we know the hurt, but we're not, you know, we know that the manager has done what he can. 2010, yeah. Bayern. These are, this is a completely different situation. Real Madrid, 2013. That's completely different to going out to Seville. You know, with all due respect, yeah. and Mourinho's reaction to that was, well, I think that, that he lost the fans really from that moment onwards. I mean, yeah, some might say he never had them on board, but but um, yeah. at that stage, he was gone for me. Yeah, um, I'd be interested to take a uh, a small part of the book and um, get an insight into um, that particular section. And I think uh, for me, I, I'd be interested to hear how United got to. Uh, as you put it in the book, Red Square Delight in Moscow in 2008. And it's it's an interesting one because I, I spoke to Clive Tilsley and Daniel Harris for a couple of episodes back in April, looking back at the 7-1 against Roma and then the uh, the games against AC Milan in the, the semi-final. And it, it, the mistakes made that saw United lose to AC Milan in that semi-final were so efficiently corrected the next year that it, it's kind of that, that seems obvious but there was obviously so much more before the defeat to AC Milan that allowed United to make just little tweaks in terms of um, resting players in the midweek games in the Premier not midweek in the weekend games in the Premier League to make sure United got through to the 2008 final all that foundational work from 2001 to um, can you can you kind of describe that as as it's in the book? Yeah, I mean, I think Ferguson was so desperate by then to win a Champions League um, somehow or another. 
that, as you mentioned, the difference between Milan, for example, in 2007 and then winning in 08. I mean, I remember between the two Barcelona games, we played a huge game against Chelsea and he rested three, four, five players and three, four, five big players, actually, I think. Unfortunately, Rooney still got injured, I think, in the in that Chelsea match in between the two legs. But whatever, you could just tell that that's how much it meant and how how the, you know, I, really Ferguson talks about going out to Milan and there's disappointment and regret, of course, um, but he also recognises that the conditioning of the squad, I think the squad was a little thin that season and we'd probably got away with it a bit domestically until that, you know, period of the, of the season. And, and we had a good enough cushion in the league that it didn't matter so much. But we did get found out against uh, Milan to some extent, but our defence was ravaged with injuries. And I don't think he wanted to have the same injury situation again a year later, no matter what. Which is interesting because when it gets to that final in 2008, that was the eleven that I think all fans and Ferguson knew was the 11 that he wanted to put out. He wanted that, that, that when we got Hargreaves the summer before and, and we also got Tevez, they were first team starters really that he aimed to have in the team. Nanny and Anderson were bought with a bit more long-term and we're going to be squad players. And do you know how many times that 2018 played together as a, as a starting 11? I'm going to assume it was, it was none before that. It was none before and it's been none since. So once. <laughs> And it was like a crescendo, if you like. And that was the 11 that I'm, well, I mean, listen, it, there's no more evidence than, than to say that we went into that final. I think Sahar was the only, Sahar was the only player that was unavailable through, through, oh, Gary Neville as well. But, but whatever. I mean, that, that was the 11 that he wanted and he got them to the peak at the, the right time, if you like. And that was really, folks would often talk about peaks. I think that journey, of course, though, I mean, you mentioned sort of 0102. The journey really begins in 2000. Unlike the 93 to 99 journey, which was generally upward, the, the 2000 to 2008 journey is kind of downward from, from 99, if you like, until it gets to a rock bottom period, uh, losing to Benfica in the group stage when we went out, to then sharply going back up again towards winning it in 2008 and kind of still staying at the top even by 2009. And uh, the 2000 evolution to 2008 is interesting. So many people have covered this, but but it's kind of clear with the with the way that we went out in 2000 um, to Madrid that we were too cavalier, and the idea of winning the Champions League like we'd won it in '99 was very quickly abandoned between 2000 and 2002. The Veron basically purchase wasn't a defensive purchase. Veron was not a defensive player. Far from it, it you know. But it did mean having three bodies in the centre of midfield. That was the idea, at least. Unfortunately, Veron's tactical discipline and I think also Keane's intimidation meant the whole experiment just didn't work and effectively, in a way, blew up in Ferguson's face to some extent. Mm. Um, but it just meant and there was a gradual decline until that Benfica result in 05. Now, of course, also in this period, which is crucial, Two things, if you like, uh, or three, arguably, if you throw Rooney in as well, his evolution. But it's 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 the Ronaldo effect, if you like, that when he came in in 04 and Carlos Quiros, that when when Ronaldo was signed, so I think it was, yeah, it was 03 Ronaldo was signed, same summer that Beckham went. And this is something that I haven't seen talked about at all by anyone. But I remember when we won the league uh, on the penultimate sort of weekend of the season and uh, Ferguson was interviewed on TV. And he was asked about, you know, the, the winning the league. 
And all he wanted to talk about really, or certainly the thing that hi- that struck for me was he wanted to talk about going out uh, in the Champions League that year in the quarterfinal to Real Madrid as well in sort of Beckham's sort of last hurrah, if you like, he came off the bench and all the rest of it. We, we kind of know that that result and Ronaldo, uh, the Brazilian Ronaldo's hat trick. Um, but what he spoke about, interesting, which I've never seen anyone talk about, you know, before or since I and, and, and I mentioned the book is he spoke about how he want he was kind of talking about how Madrid had players that could beat another player, could go past another player, and suddenly you're a man up. So uh, the idea that he felt that Beckham could possibly do that was obviously not the case, although he didn't mention him, of course, by name. But he did think that Ronaldo could do that. And of course, he didn't mention him by name because this is May 2003. This is a couple of months before you know that, that in and out happens. But that was crucial, and he felt that players like Figo, even Zidane, in the way he'd bring the ball down, could take two players out in one touch. Figo, mm. the Brazilian Ronaldo, Raul, to some extent, the, the you know the Madrid striker, all of these players could go past people and, and beat them. And suddenly, when you are counter-attacking, for example, this is crucial. We all remember how Redondo basically left um, John O'Shea, was it, behind down the down the wing? And John O'Shea was mm. basically in a different different time zone by the time you know Redondo <laughs> was at the... At the at the touchline, pulling it back for Raúl to tap in. So, so uh, that was an interesting thing that as well. And then, of course, Carlos Quiros also comes in around the same sort of time. Um, and Quiros's importance and Renny Mullenstein to some extent in, in in you know Cristiano Ronaldo's development and the evolution of the side. I mean, United fans, we don't really talk about it much, but you know, if we analyze the Barcelona home and away, for example, or away and then at home in in the semi final in away. That was a very different, you know, evolution mm-hmm. of United to the one in '99 that steamrolled yeah. and would go home and away and and attack Barcelona or Bayern or whoever. So yeah, so that's kind of it. And then, you know, we, we make it to the final. We're in peak condition. Um, uh, thankfully, we we won that final. I also talk about the penalty shootout. Um, there's a funny moment uh, if you really listen closely that we win the toss and. And Ferdinand shouts across to the to the team or the management, and he's kind of unsure if we want to take first or not. And Kiros did kind of have that planned out. He wanted Ronaldo to take the third one. Um, so the, the, the you know the level of planning and and Ferguson had, had, had changed a bit as well. And that was something that Ferguson could do. We all know about his evolution, but he could embrace. Uh, you know, I, I think with every assistant. And, and, and I don't want to down previous assistants too much, but I think with every assistant, Ferguson took a step forward. And that mm. could be whether that be from Knox to Knox did a great job and was very useful at the time for Ferguson, and especially as, as a friend as much as a, as a coach, I guess. But then to Brian Kidd, Brian Kidd was another step forward. You know, he knew how to develop players, young players especially. Then from Kidd to McLeod, McLeod again with the with the analysis that he could give, video analysis, sports science, and, and and that what he could give, and then to Kiros as well. In fact, Kiros gets mentioned twenty five times, I think, in Ferguson's second autobiography, which is the same number of times that all his previous coaches are mentioned put together, and including Mike Phelan as well, who succeeded Kiros. And Patrice Ever also speaks about post Kiros that that they weren't really as effective, especially in Europe, especially tactically. That 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 you know ever kind of yeah. says to his breath, if you like, but it was crucial, and then it was also crucial in, and of course Ronaldo leaving, and, and Ronaldo once Ronaldo went, we never really were a threat on, on you know on the European game again. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's so fascinating because 
for such a great manager who'd, I mean, uh, a manager who'd already received the knighthood by this time, it's the acceptance in even in 2007 that there was still lessons to be learned. And I think that's a kind of a, a lesson for, for wider life, but uh, also perhaps for current managers in the game. And this is uh, the, the thing I want to finish on is uh, looking at Manchester United now and Oregon and Solskjaer, a, a student of Sir Alex, um, what can he learn from the attitude of Sir Alex Ferguson to setbacks and his uh, his willingness, not so much at the start, but at the end, to delegate those responsibilities and and delegate to people who who knew better than he did in Carlos Quiroz and Rene Mullenstein. Yeah, I think there's a couple of differences before I sort of fully answer the question. Though Solskjaer, of course, is ex- much 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 younger. Uh, you know when he you know when he kind of took over, and also you know where he is now to where you know Ferguson Ferguson was in his seventies when he retired, for example. And when he took over, was in his 50s. Very different to Solskjaer. So talking about delegation, you know, one of the reasons for that was also Ferguson's age. You know, I I think Mm. he loved being around younger players and all that. And he spoke about it a lot. But he also, you know, was more than happy to, to, you know, take a back seat and let certain other people come in and and do that. Solskjaer's a bit more of his own man, I would say, compared to the Ferguson at, at the end, if you like, who would delegate. I think folks, uh, Solskjaer, of course, wants to be hands-on on everything, um, yeah. where, whereas Ferguson would, would take a back seat, if you like, to some certain, you know, let, certainly coaching sessions, for example. Um, where I think Solskjaer as well is at a, at, a, at a slight disadvantage, if you like, or a big disadvantage compared to, to Ferguson, but also with other managers around at home where Guardiola and, and, and Klopp as well is that, uh, on upon arrival, Ferguson was already established as one of the top, top, top coaches, managers, whatever you want to call it, in Britain at the time, to some extent, yeah. to a lesser extent, Europe. So when Ferguson arrives, he's already got a huge body. He's got 10 years of, 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 of really good stuff for Aberdeen, or a bit less than that. So, and, and same, you know, Guardiola and, and Klopp have 10 years of, of, of top, top, top success. So when they come in, it's like this. Soska doesn't have that and he doesn't have that background. So when we when we analyze Solskjaer, we're also thinking, well, he does, hasn't you know, won a Premier League or a Champions League or a Bundesliga or, or whatever. He hasn't had a period of success. So, you know, he the 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 non-Man United fans, let's call it at least, are certainly going to question him a bit quicker as a result. Yeah. Um, where Solskjaer could learn, I suppose, um, would be you know, and I think he has got his own style of management. I do think in terms of the way we set up is uh, different to Guardiola and, and, and um, uh, Guardiola and, um, and Klopp. You know, we do, we do press. We do try and play out from the back, but we are a little bit more on the counterattacking side. I yeah. do think that that has made us a bit one-dimensional, if you like, when it comes to teams that we need to break down. And I think that was the idea behind Fernandez and, to some extent, Van der Beek's purchases. Um, where could he learn specifically? Well, I think I think he has learned a bit because I think at first that first six to twelve months, you know, was good for the first three months, but then less over so the next three. And we were thinking, well, we do want someone a bit different to Ferguson, and I think he has moved on a bit and he doesn't kind of 
talk as often about Ferguson, how it was in the yeah. past. I think it's the right thing to do. Um, but I think, you know, this, 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 this more than one way to skin a cat. And, and, and I think Ferguson certainly had that in his locker, whether it be tactically or whether it be off the pitch mm. or, or whatever. Um, so I guess that's the, that's the, the thing that I would like to see that there's different options we would have on the pitch, uh, really, because, yeah. Uh, I think that would be the the best thing that he could possibly do, and 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 find different styles of play, and and maybe maybe you know maybe even get you know someone else. But the, the problem that Solskjaer has is we both know that it's a lot more than just the bet the coach. We we need two or three other people at the club that kind of know what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we don't. Know. I mean, it, it's it's obvious. We we know what yeah. Yeah. strengths and weaknesses are. And, he, you know, he's displayed his weaknesses very clearly over the last seven years. And we need him to take on a different role. But the problem is, is removing him from that role. And then, of course, who needs to remove him from that role with well, the owners? And, and and it's just, I mean, it's so <laughs> yeah. obvious. It's, I mean, you and I could sit down and look at, you know, 20 decisions that the club have made since Ferguson left. And probably 17 of them would have been wrong, 18. And what makes it worse is probably we knew that at the time. Yeah. So yeah. it's not us being clever after the event. Yeah. It's it's interesting though because you do I have often thought with Solskjaer that it, that there's been a number of times where it seemed appropriate for him to bring in someone to help in a specific capacity um such as in the defense at some points over the last two years you you, you think he could do with someone like Carlos Quiroz to handle the the tactics of his defence, but it's, I, there was a there's a, a nice bit right at the start of of uh, the book uh, from Rene Mullenstein talking about Ferguson showing him a flip book just after he'd been brought into to United, and uh, there are four words that are written down um, in terms of the attacking side of things: pace, power, penetration, and unpredictability. Um, and I think that. Is it's really hard to define the the mythical United DNA because I've always thought it doesn't really necessarily exist. Especially, I mean, you you talked earlier about the defensive performance away to Barca in two thousand eight. Um, it, it doesn't really exist, but if if it does, I think those four words that Mullenstein says in your book probably define it. Yeah, I mean that when he said that to me, and also you know, obviously within the book itself. I'm kind of quite excited by that. And I <laughs> yeah. think, but, you know, he wanted that to be instilled in the players. And, 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 and to be honest with you, Van Persie was very aware of this, this, this idea. And, and Mullenstein's, you know, away from the training pitch or slightly away from on the sidelines, if you like, the talks that they would have together. I mean, Mullenstein has the most obvious picture in Mullenstein's kind of office, if you like, uh, where, you know, his, his house in the UK. I mean, he's also working in Australia as well at the moment, but, is a, a picture of him and, and and Van Persie with the Premier League trophy. That's the one that really takes pride of place in in in, in Mullenstein's house, so to speak. Um, and you know, I remember him walk during the interview, for example, which was done on Zoom. But he he walked over to the picture and sort of you know showed it to me, and I'm like I had already seen it to be honest with you. It's so so clear, <laughs> and uh, and you can see. You, I was getting excited as a fan reading it, and I know. I know the players were, were excited by this this notion and this this flip chart and and talking of Van Persie as well. I mean, there was a, a quote that Ferguson used after his debut away at Everton that we lost one 0 actually, 
you know, Ferguson was quite upset with the players at the time. And, and again, there's a defeat here, but not nowhere near, probably not even the top 50 most memorable defeats, if you like, <laughs> yeah. how the season panned out. But Ferguson was angry with the players and he said he wanted them to, to feed the ball in much quicker to Van Persie because it was that moment that, you know, Van Persie would ghost. And, and, and Moonlestein mentions just ghost away. And of course, when you, I know what it's like when I'm playing and I'm, I'm not a great player, but sometimes I'm just thinking, I've got this space now, but you need to give me the ball now or it's too late. You know, and, 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 they, and that was something that would really be impressed on Rooney to some extent, depending on his role in the team. And we know how he sort of drifted back a bit during that season, but, but Carrick as well. And as soon as you got the ball, keep an eye out for Van Persie because he's going to just drift away and you've got to get it into him. We know Van Persie's first touch will be good and his second would often be bang. Um, and so, yeah, and I, I would be excited as a player. And if you're a top player, you react positively to that. Absolutely. Um, John, thank you very much for coming on the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. Um, even the defeat is out now and available to buy from all good bookshops, I imagine. Waterstones, uh, Amazon and Pitch Publishing. Is there one specific place you'd like people to to buy it from, though? I mean, Pitch Publishing is the, the publishers, so that would be, of course, great if you went directly to uh, Pitch Publishing on their website, which is pitchpublishing.co.uk, I think. And the book, obviously, even the defeats. Um, yeah, so I mean that's great. But if you decide that you, you know, you've got your your discount with Amazon, for example, or you, you or you you prefer to go into the shop itself. I mean, Waterstones and WH Smith uh, have it too. So whatever uh, your preference is, I uh, hope you enjoy it as much as I did writing it. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thanks, mate. Hope you enjoyed that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. If you want more stuff like this, you can support the podcast and get extra episodes, um, including more episodes where we talk to authors about their books about Manchester United. You can go to our Patreon. Patreon is a website where podcast listeners can sign up to support the so-called content creators by paying a little bit of money each week and in return getting back some bonus content such as extra episodes, bonus episodes, uh, extended interviews. Um, like this one and much more including bonus Q&As at the end of every episode of the Manchester United Weekly Podcast you can sign up from as little as 38p a week I believe um, or a little bit more than that and how much you pay depends how much you get back in return if you want more information on that or you want to sign up go to our Twitter at UTD Weekly Pod that's P-O-D at UTD Weekly Pod that's P-O-D um, and you can get more information there if you want to read more from me over the week you can find me on Twitter at Harry Robinson. 64 and if you want John's book just look up even the defeats Manchester United and it should come up on Amazon Waterstones Pit Publishing wherever that's all for now have a great week goodbye Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.